Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Full of Energy, an AEE podcast where we talk about workforce development, energy hot topics, and energy policy. The Association of Energy Engineers, otherwise known as AEE, is a professional organization of over 17,000 members and 32,000 actively certified individuals in over 100 countries. AEE serves your needs for career development, networking, and recognition. Today, I'm pleased to have both Albert Williams and John Puskar back on the mic to discuss more about energy audits in the industrial sector. The first episode was released back in May, and we were only able to barely scratch the surface about industrial energy audits. So just as a refresher, Albert, do you mind giving a brief introduction about yourself again? Okay, so I'm based in South Africa and I've been working almost two decades now in energy management, energy consulting. And the last five years or so, I'm a freelance independent consultant working for myself. And most of my work is in energy uh, engineering training courses, developing courses, but I still do some, uh, some consulting as well, focusing on energy systems and your larger industrial um, clients. John, what about you? So I'm John Pushkar. I'm a licensed PE in Ohio and a number of other states. I've been at this about 40 years now. I've got an industrial background. I started my career at Standard Oil of Ohio. I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, actually. Um, I've always kind of taken a practical turn towards all of this. I have a number of contractor licenses. And so I've been on the design engineering side and also on the hands-on implementation side of energy projects. I'm a CEM, a CIEP, and a fellow of AEE, and happy to be here. Thank you. So last episode, we discussed some trends and challenges around industrial energy. And in this episode, I think I want to discuss what it's like to work with industrial customers, so the client relations and implementation side. Um, Let's just start with the basics. You were just asked to do an energy audit for an industrial client. What's your first discussion like? Who are you speaking with? And what is being said and why? John, do you want to go first? Sure. So this is something that I would encourage you to to think through very carefully. Uh, What I've kind of learned, and you you learn through a lot of things that kind of don't go well. So what I've learned the hard way is you got to talk to a lot of people. You may be entering this entire uh, scenario through the engineering staff or through some upper management level, but you've really got to both, you've got to speak with them, you've got to speak with maintenance staff, and you've got to speak with actual operators who have their hands on the equipment. And you've got to walk around and talk to people to the point where it's annoying and people are going to look at you and go, are you actually going to do any energy conservation work? Or are you just going to talk to people? You want to find out things like, what do you think the big energy users are? Um, are there issues with any of your equipment? Uh, quality issues, uh, production issues, maintenance issues. Is there a predisposition to already be replacing something? What have you done before and what's worked and not worked? I'll give you an example of kind of a little bit of a a frustrating moment and what I want you to try to avoid. So I was at a client site looking at a a phosphate dip tank system. They were making stampings and this phosphate is like a soap solution. And the tanks are usually kept at 160 to 180 degrees. And, you know, it's kind of a cleaning process. 
And I remember this thing being a mess. The temperature controls were all screwed up. They were overflowing some of these tanks. Great opportunity for me. And I was getting all excited about writing that up. When one of the maintenance people said, you want to see the new ones? We've got the new ones up in the warehouse already. And I thought, wow, so this is how I have to find out. So my original initial client had never mentioned this. I would have spent hours researching this. And there's already new ones here on site in a warehouse. So um, that kind of speaks to the importance of talking to a lot of people, uh, asking a lot of questions. And when you're done with all this talking, go back to your initial client and say things like, hey, here's kind of what I saw. And here's what I'm thinking makes sense. Take their temperature, so to speak, on a bunch of things. Uh, again, no reason spending a bunch of time and figuring out it's not something they want to do or they've done it in another site, never try it again. So that's kind of my thoughts about who you talk to, what's said in the initial discussions. Albert, you got anything to yeah. add? Yeah, no, definitely. It's um, some good points you make there. Uh, I think also you can, when you talk to these operators, also sometimes good to just ask them, you know, what do you think in terms of energy opportunities? Because sometimes these guys are sitting in the lunchrooms and discussing some attractive opportunities. So they may have some good ideas that you didn't think about because these guys do have a lot of experience. You can you can even bounce some of your ideas off of them and they may have some practical reasons why it may not work. If you want to change something, they say, yes, we thought about it long ago, but um, because of this and this, it's not going to be practical. Um, so yeah, for sure, talk to the operators. And then when you want to get projects implemented, I would say, uh, obviously top management, it's important to get your, to get your foot in the door there um, as they are very important to allocate resources, to communicate to the employees, to assist you in doing your audit and getting your correct findings. So for ultimate implementation, yeah, your, your management is going to be a, a key factor. And that's also one of the ISO 30001 top, you know, it's the heart of the standard is to get management commitment, uh, first of all. So if you are lucky, you can get to top management. If you're not so lucky, walk around, talk around, maybe eventually you'll get to the top management as well. So how important are utility costs and special contracts and rate schedules to industrial customers? Albert? Um, I would say for an energy manager, um, it's very, very important that you do understand the tariff structure and how it is comprised. And this depends really on which country you are working in. A lot of countries have got, so basically all the countries have got different uh, tariff structures. And you have to understand if you have got a time of use tariff, if you are charged for maximum demand, if you've got seasonality changes in the costs, you may have to, uh, you want to see if it's excessive, if it's excessive amounts. So the understanding of that is quite important. So, so uh, in South Africa, for instance, we've got a, a notified maximum demand, they call it. So that's sort of a contractual agreement that you have with the municipality or with the utility. Um, that's a, a power use that you will never, ever exceed because they have to supply you with that, with that correct infrastructure. Now, if you exceed that, you are penalized for 11 months into the future. And I had an example at a, 
uh, it's a petroleum working a processing company and these guys had a notified maximum demand that was more than double and they have ever used in the previous year and they could have just gone to the utility and reduced that notified demand but they never did it just because of a buffer capacity or because of a safety aspect and it was quite expensive and they wasted quite a lot of money um, so yeah understanding that tariff is important some countries have got very much or much less complicated structures and it's just a fixed consumption um, but but most countries do have some sort of a, a time of use tariff then also your thermal energy storage comes into play and another thing I think is very important is maximum demand control. So you do not exceed your maximum demand or your, 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 your peak demand for the month. And if you have that component in your structure, in your tariff structure, real-time measurement of data is extremely important. To, to, to measure minutely or maybe uh, two or three minutely to have that data in real time. Because if you only get your bill at the end of the month, and you've seen where you've exceeded your demand, then it's no use. It's like going going to a hotel, expensive hotel in New York or somewhere, and you wait for the checking out to see what your bill is. So it's always good to uh, you know to to measure before the time before you exceed these limitations. John. Yeah. So I think there's two very important things to consider here. One is. Uh, your own credibility. And the reason I mentioned that is because you as a consultant or as a practitioner often will tell someone what the cost of something is. You'll tell someone the operational impact, and then you'll tell someone what the savings are expected to be. And when those savings aren't there, you're likely to get a phone call and it's not a pleasant phone call. And frankly, there may be more consequences than a phone call could be a legal issue that you have. And that can come about if you didn't accurately consider how the rate schedule actually impacted your cost savings. So most industrial rate schedules are somewhat what they call block rated. So for example, in the electrical side, the last few kilowatt hours are like real cheap. And you're not backing out average kilowatt hours, you're backing out the real cheap stuff. So sometimes it's so complex that you almost have to create a spreadsheet model of what the actual future bills are going to be, um, which oftentimes if the rate schedule is kind of complex could be quite a bit of work. And then and it's an extra quality thing that some consultants do that others don't do. So again, Protecting your credibility and really knowing what the savings are, are one reason to pay attention to rate schedules. The other important reason is people really like you if you can save them energy, reduce their carbon footprint, but they love you if you could really save them a lot of money. And they love you when they really don't have to do anything more than a paper shuffle to save that money. So it's never a utility's responsibility to know or to tell you that you're on the right rate schedule or taking advantage of every rider that's a special condition that's possible. For example, in Ohio here, Ohio Edison has 47 different riders that can be applied um, 
subject to what the special conditions are of a customer. There's economic development writers, hospital writers, school writers. So it's incumbent upon the consultant or who's ever doing the project to evaluate all the possibilities that are there with the utility companies that could benefit the client with just a paper shuffle. So that's kind of how I look at the whole utility rate structure concept with clients. Yeah, and it can get quite complex. I think in South Africa, relatively small against the USA, we've got, I think, 128 different uh, tariff structures. So you can really do your PhD in, on, on that topic. And yeah, it's your responsibility to understand that and to go into the fine print and, and see what you are built for. Okay, let's talk about the sweet spot. So can you both give me an idea of three areas that you look for for things that you specialize in when you're doing an industrial energy audit, John? So I've been into the thermal world most. That's kind of my foremost love. And that that's boilers, process ovens, furnaces, steam systems. So I oftentimes look for the low-lying fruit, which to me is things like operating pressures are too high or there's condensate not being returned. Um, I try to look at flames and burners and see if flames look to be efficient. One of the things I like to do is to go up on the roof of a facility and look for plumes. The plumes are a dead giveaway of where I should really be looking hard because there's something probably going wrong. I'm, I'm meaning plumes of steam coming out of pipes. I also like to look at ventilation systems. Um, I often find that ventilation systems are poorly designed, poorly maintained, and poorly managed. And you really need all three to be somewhat energy efficient. And last but not least, I, I love to look at water systems. They're often neglected. One of the simple things I do is, is to ask where the outfall is, where the customer is sending things to a publicly owned treatment works. Like to go out, pop a manhole cover, look down there with a flashlight, see if there's considerable flow, uh, maybe during the middle of the night on a weekend. I also like to look at storm outflows, storm sewers, and look for dry weather storm flow. Um, shouldn't be any, right? So if you start to see lots of flow and there's no rain, it's a cloudless sky, tells you I need to start looking at things like cooling tower overflows, uh, process water pit overflows, uh, things like that that are wasting considerable amount of water when they shouldn't be. Albert? Okay, so the, the areas I work in most is on uh, compressed air systems. That's why I started most of my engineering work or energy engineering work. So compressed air systems, so pumping systems, and on steam systems as well. I do some other stuff, but that's maybe my main, main focus points. So there's lots of stuff to say about this, and I suppose that's why we do training courses, is to go a little bit deeper into these topics. Um, but if I can just mention these three areas quickly. So on, on compressed air systems, that's my favorite topic. And I would say what's often missed by people, I think they underestimate compressed air systems in terms of how complicated it can be because it's very dynamic. But I also think 
people underestimate the attractiveness of the sizes of the opportunities that's available. Um, and a lot of time, you know, people just look at leaks and I say, okay, we've done a compressed air audit, but it's, there's such a lot of more things there. And I will talk a little bit more about this. I've got a session planned for the AE World Conference in Orlando in October, and I'll speak a bit more about that. But I like to divide my systems up into maybe two or three areas. And compressed air, I've got supply, distribution, and demand side. Now, I've got sort of the 10 commandments that I've coined in, in compressed air. So on the supply side, things that you have to look at is control. Um, so your screw compressors and centrifugal compressors control very much differently. And you have to understand the, the intricacies in that. For example, a screw compressor, um, in a screw compressor system, you should never have more than one variable speed drive. Otherwise, your system is not as efficient as it can be. Other things is looking at the location, the air density going into the machine. Uh, heat recovery of compressors is a very attractive opportunity. You can recover in some instances 96% of all the energy going into a compressor. So that's a supply side. On a distribution, looking at sizing dryers correctly, uh, positioning your filter correctly, looking at your pipe network, that you uh, re reduce the velocity of the air and reduce friction. Uh, and then also storage volume, to have sufficiently sized storage volume, which has a lot of advantages. And then on the demand side, we are trying to eliminate inappropriate use of air. We're trying to reduce the leakages, which is a very common one. And then last one then is uh, artificial demand, which is basically optimizing the pressure. Because if you've got too much pressure, uh, your leaks is leaking more, your inappropriate uses are also wasting more. Okay, so that's compressed air. Uh, come to Orlando and we'll talk a bit more about that. In, in, in pump systems, I would say understanding the performance curves is important. Uh, if you want to do a proper pump, pump assessment. Now, there's a pump curve and a system curve. Now, a pump curve is influenced by speed control in terms of a variable speed drive or impeller trim, for instance. And you also then have to consider what is influencing your system curve. Now your system curve can be influenced by friction in the discharge of the pump or on the suction. And also the system curve is influenced by elevation also on the suction side or on the discharge side. So I, I see many reports. I do lots of these uh, uh, audit report vetting, and I see a lot of uh, maybe electrical engineers <laughs> bless their cells, but a lot of time they, focus on pump efficiency retrofits or motor efficiency retrofits, while there's a lot of other cheaper and first priority opportunities. So we always like to de decrease the friction in the pipes. We want to address the, um, the, the pressure conditions on the suction of, of the pump as well. We want to have a high uh, pressure on the suction to avoid cavitation and to run the pump more efficiently. And then also then maintenance and reliability is very important in pump systems. If your pump is not happy, if it's if it's uh, not operating or not serviced correctly, it's going to be very inefficient as well. So the maintenance, bad maintenance will result in your pump running too much left or too much right of, of its pump uh, performance curve. All right, and then just quickly on steam systems, um, the end users, lots of things to think about there. You have to understand the process, first of all. Uh, every system is different, so the end users are very unique. 
but heat exchanger fouling is quite common. Then on the distribution side, uh, John mentioned a condensate, a condensate return, looking at steam traps, looking at insulation of pipes. But for me, a, a big area of waste on boilers is in the boiler room itself. So you've got basically three big losses there. That is shell losses, which can be up to 2% losses. That's when your shell is not insulated well. You also then have blow-off losses, which can be uh, up to 10% in a bad system. So you want to automate those. And the biggest one is combustion losses or your fuel-air ratio. And you can have losses from 15 to about 50% losses there. So getting your air-fuel ratio correct is, is quite important. Okay, so sorry that's a bit long, but uh, that's my my two cents there. So what are some other things besides energy? And I know, John, you kind of touched on this a little, a little bit about, you know, storm drains and, and runoff and stuff like that. But what are some other things besides energy that you look for when you're doing an industrial audit? So in our last podcast, I talked about my perspective with industrial clients, and it's never just really about energy. I think it can't be with industrial clients. I think if you don't talk about things like extending asset life, safety, environmental impact, uh, reducing maintenance costs. If you don't bundle all of those other components of value, you're you're hurting yourself, you're hurting the client. Um, so those are things that today I'm seeing get projects sold. Uh, usually energy cost savings is somewhat minor component anymore to getting a project sold and implemented. Albert, you have anything to add? Yes, uh, no, for sure. And, uh, you know, I think energy can keep you busy enough <laughs> looking at other stuff, but, but for sure, what you say is, is 100%. Um, you know, and, and Eric Woodruff always talks about the non-utility benefits and he did some papers there. But for sure, if you can increase your asset life, or if you can decrease your maintenance cost, um, it can be much more valuable. If you can, um, if you can reduce impact or re replacing glands or seals on a on a pump, it's going to be a hundred times more attractive to clients than just uh, just some energy savings. So yeah, you can you can improve productivity, you can increase your asset lives, and uh, for instance, if you run a, a IE four motor rather than an IE one or an IE two motor. You should have, you can, the motor will run cooler. It will last much longer. The bearings will be, will be less friction. Um, you'll have less slip on these motors. So there's such a lot of additional benefits. And sometimes I always tell the guys, if, if you're struggling to sell your energy project, look a bit outside of the box and look at these other stuff, these non-utility benefits and production improvements. And then you may find the project can sell a bit easier. How does the implementation of your findings with an industrial client client differ from other types of clients? How can you sell this project to an industrial customer versus just a normal client? Albert, you want to take that? And so, <laughs> um, I think risk is very important. If you go to industrial facilities, if you go to a steel plant and you play around with the pressures or the temperatures, they are very pedantic about that. So. You never ever want to negatively influence production with uh, trying to save energy. Most of the time, it's not the case. Most of the time, they are mutually inclusive. 
But if you impact production, it will be a hundred to a thousand times more expensive than any energy savings and that you may have um, achieved. You know, and, and back in the day, long ago, when I was <laughs> still a little bit younger, I was, uh, you know, we went to mines on Sunday mornings early at five o'clock in the morning, doing some testing to see what will the effect be on changing a pressure. What will be the effect of switching off this compressor if you plug some leaks or whatever. So um, I would say testing is crucial before these projects will even, even be considered to be implemented. And another thing on industrial clients is the hurdle rates. The hurdle rates is much more aggressive to achieve. I think we, we talked about this a little bit last in the, in the podcast, but your hurdle rates for industrial clients are much more aggressive and the paybacks are much shorter before they will approve a project. So that's when you can, can, can come back to the previous question and you, you, um, you attach these non-utility benefits to sell the project. Don? Yeah, so uh, for those of you who don't practice in the industrial world a lot, you need to go to whatever, whatever you're going to use as a table of contents for a report that you might write. And I suggest you add a whole new section there in your table of contents, and it's called risk management. As Albert said, I, I fully support that. Um, you should not be doing an industrial audit without formally addressing that. And the kinds of risks I'm talking about are sensitivity of installation costs. You might do a, a most favorable uh, an optimistic, pessimistic, most likely case for implementation costs. You might do that for future energy savings. You should also talk about, you know, possible risks to production or quality. Um, better to bring these out and talk about them now. There should all, you know, if you've ever seen the uh, financial report of a publicly traded company, they put all these notes in there about what can go wrong. That's almost what you have to be having in your report. And I think you also have to have kind of a talk about how's this actually gonna be done? Are you gonna do it with in-house people? Are you gonna bring contractors in to do it? Because those two scenarios give you some insight into how friendly the installation's going to be. And what that's all about is how much additional engineering is going to be required. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many projects I've done where you, some clients, you can give them a little bit of direction. You can say uh, the the compressor controls need to be upgraded to this and they'll get it. Others, you need a complete set of detailed drawings. And if you don't give them that, there's going to be great disappointment. And one other thing, kind of as Albert was talking about, always think about piloting these things because you don't know what you don't know. So maybe you're going to say, hey, I think this will work. No reason why it shouldn't. Let's try it on one machine, run that way for a couple of months. Then we'll try it on three machines. Then we'll do the whole rest of the plant. Don't ever suggest going in and on a over a weekend, you're going to make a whole bunch of changes and Monday, they're going to be irreversibly implemented. That's just not a good way to get a lot of sleep at night. Well, um, our last technical question, I should say, is 
what do you see ahead as some of the emerging trends in industrial energy conservation? Albert? Mm, emerging trends. Well, the AI thing, I know John's got a really nice session um, on that um, CM annual review in October 18th on AI. So come and check that out, <laughs> those emerging trends. Thanks for but, the plug. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think a lot of stuff is already optimized or rather, let, let me rather say, the basics will always stay the basics. Okay, so you can you can achieve quite attractive savings just by sticking with the fundamentals and looking at things that's been aged old and, and, and old textbooks captured already. That's where you will still get attractive savings. But there's quite a lot of emerging trains where computers and um, self-learning systems are coming into play. If you look at control systems. There's, there's some some interesting developments there. I know in the, the the world conference there's quite a lot of tracks as well where a lot of speakers are dedicated to this to these these topics of uh, Internet of Things and 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 the overload of data that we have these days. Um, and yeah, I remember last year also on, on John's presentation where we've we are moving away from these these big measurement equipment and all of these uh, all of this expensive stuff that you have to carry around and everything becomes more much more mobile and uh, cell phone application based and you can just stick some modules measuring combustion efficiency or sticking a thermal camera into your phone and you can do some measurements so uh, for me that's a very attractive um, emerging trend that is happening and it makes audits much faster, much easier, and much cheaper as well. And more people can get into the game of energy management. John? Yeah, so thanks for the comment about the AI uh, part of things. I'm obsessed with that. I've been, I use chat GPT every day. I'm, it's overtaking my life. I'm kind of sorry to say it's kind of weird, but it's true. Um, and I'm here to tell you that a lot of the low-end energy audit, energy analyses, calculations, you're just going to go and have a little chat with something like ChatGPT, and it's going to spit it all out. Um, maybe you're going to be driving in your car on the way home from an energy audit, and you're going to be talking out loud into your phone. And by the time you get back to your office, all the calculations will be done. Uh, that's That's here right now. So you really need to be upping your game and staying current or you won't be in this business much anymore. So I, I, that's where I kind of see the whole AI thing going and more to come in October, as you said. The other thing that I think is becoming a very dominant force is the availability of data. So much data, it's overwhelming, but it's now available for micro data loggers. It's available in the cloud. Um, and the way that's going to help, I think, is remember I said with ventilation systems, you have to design them right, you have to install them right, you have to manage them right. So the management of everything that we have that's using energy is now going to be right at our fingertips with all the data that's available. In some cases, you can manage things that are somewhat archaic and energy intensive. You can manage them now because you have a lot of data. So this availability of, uh, sorry, availability of data and what you do with it and how you use it 
it's going to be a big game changer. So those are some things I see coming down really fast. Well, no, I've had some furious debates. Sorry, uh, Laurie, I've had some furious debates with ChatGPT, and we were fighting into and forth all the time and had some big arguments. But at the end of the day, you know, if you if you tell ChatGPT, I forgive you uh, for the wrong information you gave me, they they always accept your your um, you know they apologize profusely for that. So it's it's a, very interesting. You know, you can have some discussions and um, you can learn from each other. Actually, yeah, very nice. You know that concludes the technical part of our podcast but of course you know AEE's first value is that we do put people first so we like to get to know the people behind the profession you guys are familiar with this with the rapid fire round but we've renamed it to um, just kind of talk about the people behind the profession so I just have three quick questions for you Um, what is your favorite season of the year Albert um, I enjoy the summer, but not too much summer because it gets quite hot in some parts of South Africa. Um, yeah, sort of the, the spring summer because normally we can, you know, we can go into the wilderness. I enjoy the holiday, the season in, in summer season is holiday season in South Africa. So we like to go away, uh, go into the bush, getting back to nature, Getting back to your roots, I, I found that very relaxing. Last weekend, we were, for instance, away in a, in a bush only a few days, and even in the first ten minutes, driving into that um, nature where there's no people, this this raw nature, you just feel relaxed much faster. So yeah, summer or, or spring going into summer, I would say. So I, I love fall. I love it when all the trees are changing leaves. There's colors everywhere there's the air is crisp it's football season there's always a lot of drama going on i've been a brown season ticket holder now for 42 years so i understand how to absorb pain i can take a beating uh but i just love the dynamic skies the coming of winter it just i I just love fall it's cool you can dress up you're comfortable it's my favorite season so besides your home cuisine like you know South African and American food what other types of cuisine do you like to explore so so I I like Thai food and Asian food Um, I love exploring things on the menu where I, I have no idea what it is I just have no idea and I can get bits and pieces out of the wait staff about what it supposedly is but it's fun to try new things like that. So that's Asian food is my first love. Yeah, I also like to keep an open mind if I'm traveling. <laughs> uh, they always, um, you know, they motivate you to eat some local foods. So I always try that, but not too much, perhaps. Uh, I enjoy curries or, or Indian food. It's quite nice. Uh, in, in Pakistan, they made some some awesome stuff there. When I, I go to Egypt quite a lot and I've got some stuff uh, called awawashi. It's sort of like a, almost, almost like a jaffle. I don't know if you know what a jaffle is. It's like bread with some seasoning in the inside. So uh, these these things, all countries have got some, and the people are quite proud. If you if you start talking with locals about their food, they get very very passionate, and they say you must eat this, you must eat this in this city, in this place. So keep your mind open. In South Africa, yes, we eat lots of uh, meat. We are meat lovers. <laughs> um very very tasty and 
and I I eat a lot. I can eat anything. I don't have any uh, revenge or barriers to eating. I eat quite a lot. I've got a little bit of a fast metabolism, which I can't slow down. So it's a bit of a, a pain, actually, because I never get full. I just eat. I think I've got some worms or something. Uh, but but I I love eating. <laughs> okay, so since I've got a guy from South Africa on, let me tell you my South African food story real quick. So I visited South Africa once, and the host said, you've got to come to the meat store with us because we have this stuff. It's like jerky. It's called baltung or something like that. You you probably know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah baltung. Yes. 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 And, and we went in this meat store, and this stuff was hanging there out in the open air and they packed some and they they my wife and I squeamishly had a little bit and we smiled and said oh yeah this is good and they said great glad you like it because listen you need to take some home here here let's grab a couple of pounds for you and we were thinking wow we were just trying to be nice but boy they really like this stuff so anyway uh, yeah we are very proud of our biltong uh, also a uh, or a dry sausage is, is similar you would have seen that as well so yeah we always take some with our to our friends and families that's overseas we always try to smuggle some some through <laughs> for them to enjoy great <laughs> last question um probably the easiest question but you both mentioned world coming up in october ae world energy conference and expo tell me what are you most excited about for aee world this year john I love drifting around and meeting new people. And there's people there that are just awesome. I've met people there who have done projects and implemented things that I've only dreamed about. Things you read in magazines, uh, waste energy projects, big digesters, big solar projects, you name it. There's people there who have done anything your brain can conceive of or imagine. And the chance to get to spend 15 minutes with somebody who's actually lived it, done it, can tell you every piece of it, is just really cool. And that's what I most look forward to is the fellowship, the diversity of people, and just, you know, being able to geek out on energy projects. Now, I think for me, which I'm most excited about is getting there because it's such a long, <laughs> long flight and a long journey to get there. No, seriously, I, I try to go every year. It's really, you, you can't really explain it to someone who has not been there before. Um, and, and, and like you say, it's, it's such a fast paced, uh, basically five days. Um, you are networking such a lot of uh, different variety of people. You meet people from all countries, imaginable or unimaginable lots of networking, and you learn really quite a lot. Um, there's such a lot of things going on there. Uh, it's such a busy time. But uh, yeah, I'm also looking my, very much forward to the to the, to the speakers, the opening speaker, uh, Al Gore. I've been watching his stuff for a long time now. And and the closing speaker also, um, Frank Abagnale, that's going to be quite interesting. My, my father-in-law is actually a, a forensic uh, auditor, and he almost worships the guy he's read all his books he watched all his stuff so he's very jealous of me um going there and yes i would like to take a picture with him but yeah i enjoy i i enjoy that as well but a wealth of knowledge and it's really a unforgettable experience all of my world conferences were something to remember so i look very much forward to that
Well, thank you both for coming back on the podcast this month. Um, I really appreciated the knowledge share. This has been Full of Energy, an AU podcast. We'll see you next month.